This is With All Due Respect from Eternity and welcome back to all our listeners and this is our Christmas special. I'm Megan Paldutois. And I'm Michael Jensen. Love the idea of the Christmas special. Um, not enough of it in Australia. There isn't. No. I love it. I just love Christmas as will no doubt come out. But I also want to give a special shout out to those listeners who are listening to us while they're doing the washing up because several people have said that's when they people? listen to us with their arms in people? the sink. Um, probably, well, men do the washing up too. They do, but have they said it? No, mostly. Let's find that out. Okay. For argument's sake, where we take a debate, cut out the party politics and try to talk it out. And the argument that we're looking at today, which is I think a more an implicit one that people have, which is, is Easter better than Christmas? Well, of course, yeah. Easter is much better than Christmas. No. Because... because <laughs> Because Easter is uh, is the completion of the story. Without without Easter, no Christmas. You know, no point in Christmas without, without Easter. Christmas, no Easter. Well, indeed, but uh, Easter is the kind of capstone, I guess. It's the it's it's the point of Christmas. Oh, I just found that really problematic, as if we want to take out parts of Jesus' story and say, "Oh, that bit, you know, was just really a, a tool to the, the other bit." I mean, what about the incarnation? I kind of feel a bit trapped here because it wasn't either or question. Is Easter better than <laughs> Christmas? Well, I think one of the things has been in Christmas in Christian theology, and especially in evangelical yes. theology, is we've we've separated off the um, the incarnation from the atonement, the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, which has been the focus, rightly, of a lot of evangelical preaching and theology. And so what we've got really is Jesus, almost like Solomon Grundy, born on a Monday, and then <laughs> and then kind of delivered to the cross on Friday. Yeah. And then, you know, what's the point of his, his sort of birth and life and his nature? It's almost like the focus on him as the, the atoning sacrifice is taken away yeah, I think, I think that's true. I think we have just become so caught up with our Christocentrism, particularly the evangelicals, our, our focus on the cross, that we ignore actually the richness of what's happening in the incarnation and therefore at Christmas. Well, that's true. Although if you go back to one of the great books written on the incarnation, which is Athanasius, who wrote this book. <laughs> this is going back a while. That is going back a while. Uh, back to the third, fourth century. Yes. He, he, uh, he was only 21 when he wrote it too, which makes me hate him. Because <laughs> he was so but far ahead. Shorter lives. That's uh, true. But he wrote the book on the Arcana- yep. incarnation. It's really a book about the atonement. It's really a book about the cross. It's about Jesus' saving work. It's not. It's not a technical book about the nature of Christ. No, but without. I mean, the two things go together, don't they? It's when we try and sort of see one as more important than the other that I think we have a problem. So, I mean, why? What? What do we miss by not? not um, emphasising or not talking about the incarnation so much? Well, I think we, we miss um, what it tells us about Jesus and his connection with us. And, I mean, that is that is in itself an incredible sacrifice, as we see in Philippians, that God um, came and became a human being in a different way but still a significant enriching way in terms of how we think from um, the sacrifice of the cross. So even even the the coming to earth um, is a humbling is is not conceiving of equality as something to be grasped. To use Philippians, a great yeah, great, yeah. great text, really yes. central to the whole Philippian letter, and and you know it, it's one of the hugest texts in the New Testament. Shows that there's a sacrifice. It's even to death on the cross, but the whole course of that is saving. Yeah, like and, the, the, and the sacrificial. The whole of um, that hymn in Philippians. Uh, covers the whole Jesus event, if you like. It's not just about the cross. 
No, it's not, it's not separated out like yeah. that. I guess I guess in some theology, especially in Anglicanism, the the reverse holds true. So that there are Anglicans who just emphasise the incarnation. They go around saying, "Oh, Anglicanism is really about the the incarnation." And so, therefore, <laughs> what they mean by that then is that 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 what we should do is is copy the incarnation in terms of identifying with people. We just identify with people a lot, and. If we want to minister to the poor, we have to become poor. If we yeah. minister to the rich, we become rich or whatever. It, I mean, Which is a useful, a useful um, thought, but obviously, yes, it, it lacks something if it doesn't have the atonement. Um, so I guess, I, I mean, why are we choosing? I mean, I set up the questions. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I do think that happens. I um, actually came across... Um, uh, this article by a woman in Christianity Today who was saying that becoming a Christian ruined her love of Christmas. Because oh, right. yes. she kind of felt like she needed to sort of draw back and go, oh, it's too consumerist, you know. Yes. Like, as if I need to be countercultural here. The culture loves Christmas, not Easter so much, so we're going to just turn that round, which I think is a really sort of knee-jerk reaction. Yeah, I guess I guess the thing is that um, it does feel like the consumer economy has taken over Christmas as a, as a, from Christians Whereas Easter still feels like it's our day, you know, it still feels like the 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 everyone else is just going to Bunnings and doing their home renovations and eating chocolate, and they're not really <laughs> buying into the meaning. Whereas we've got something to. Whereas whereas Christmas has become this sort of peace um, peace festival where you go home and have an argument with your family over the Christmas turkey. Yeah, but yeah, there's kind of a um, then a sort of throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Um, even the sense of of the like. I'm going to say something a little bit controversial here. I don't like those little cards that you give someone saying, I gave someone a goat you don't for like your the Christmas goats. present. That's right? what I got you. <laughs> no, you haven't got it yet. Um, or, or a toilet. <laughs> well, I mean, we should. We should be doing that at Christmas. But I, was, I actually was reading um, G.K. Chesterton on the theology of Christmas presents. Do yes, you know yes. this? No, I don't. Uh, and he was saying, actually, Christmas presents are incarnational. Okay, go on. It so, sounds, sounds good. Yeah, it was really good. So th- that they, it, it's they have to be material. That they show that it's it's not enough just to give people a gesture. Yeah, okay. or just a, a, a nice thoughts. That there's something about manifesting your love in something material that speaks in a way to who we are as embodied material people, and that therefore, like Jesus, had to be embodied and become material because that speaks to us in a way that nothing else could, right? And Christmas presents he sees as part of that, even to the very sensuousness. And he talks about the presence of um, the the wise men and how um, that they have a sensuousness to it. Mm, like, they smell. They smell and so on. Like they're, they're very smelly, yeah. yes. Well, that, I guess so. But the, but then he's writing before them the, the, the sort of uh, mass consumption of... Um, that with the consumer economy we live in, which is just a glut of stuff we don't need, you know, we're sort of we've got piles and piles, yeah, and, piles and, and plastic stuff. and so on. So I mean, yeah, you want to say some other things as well, but you can you can sort of too far say getting things for people, consuming, enjoying. Like there, there's almost like there's an, a, sort of a distrust of of happiness and enjoyment in it. And and what I've just said, interestingly, the re- the reaction to the uh, the consumer economy would not be to um, loathe material stuff, and the mm. incarnation tells us that mm. God inhabits material stuff. Yes. So, I mean, there is there is in contemporary culture both a love of the body and a hatred of the body at the same time. It's kind of an amb- amb- ambiguous relationship we have with our physical reality that we sort of love to be virtual. Absolutely, selves and I reckon that's coming in because yet- Easter is about death, right? 
and the resurrection. Yes. But as we've talked about, people forget how bodily the resurrection is, right? While um, Christmas is about coming into uh, a bodliness that we're actually uncomfortable with, as we'll see with the Christmas carols when we look at those. So your presence should have presence. Yes. You see what I mean? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. They body. They should be bodily, but they could be an apple. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Or chocolates that I make people, and then they don't want to have them because they make them fat. Okay. But I make them. That's too much. Body. I should make body. them eat them. Is it? Yes. So is the excess of Christmas yes. um, uh, a helpful thing too? Because, I mean, it really is that it's the festival of excess, isn't it? It's, it's where you have too much to eat. Well, I mean, and there is something to that, isn't there? Of, um, I mean, you don't want to eat so much that you throw up. Not like sort of the Roman Bacchanalia kind of throw up so you can eat some more. Like, that's just offensive. <laughs> no. Um, and I know he was cleaning that up. But... Yeah, like there, there, there is – sometimes we need to have a festival of abundance. Yeah, I think it's right. Because God is an, an abundant God. Exactly. God is an abundant abundant and generous God and it mirrors the grace, the, the sort of the, the non-stinginess of God. That, yeah. And it, it takes us away from that um, feeling of um, that we're in an exchange economy with limited res- – in a world with limited resources, there's not enough to go around. No, no, Christmas, there's – we're reminded that in God's in mm. God's. Well, I mean, there is enough to go around. It's just that we're not sharing it very well. Well, well yeah, absolutely. <laughs> quite. I, I guess, too, Christmas is a festival um, because of what its ideal represents. Often the ideal is a great is a terrible judge on, on people who don't match the ideal. So people feel uh, who, who are lonely feel mm. Christmas extremely uh, as, a, as a moment of pain. And I think and that that is like our abundance must not be a selfish abundance. No. So it must it must um, flow out onto uh, which you know I think is part of the Christmas story. It must flow out onto the lowly, the unloved, the yeah. And and uh, and and suicide is, it goes up after Christmas. For instance, family fights, or, divorce, or before, yeah. divorces occur in January more than any other time of the year. Yeah. Um, so it 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 is it it's like the blessing is a is a kind of we don't understand grace becomes this sort of. Um, condemnatory thing that judges us you know our family shows us our family life isn't what it what it should be so somehow as we preach and teach and talk about christmas we mm. have to show show and that's that complexity of emotion that we don't i think often deal with very well as christians that that there can be joy like the we weep with those who weep we rejoice with those who rejoice that those are things um, not only we do it in different seasons, but we do it at the same time, that all of that's happening at the same time. And Facebook really shows me that too, that like I have one friend, you know, who's had a, an incredible death in the family at the same time as another friend is saying, my son just got the award in class, you know, and, and you feel both of those at once for them. Yeah. Yeah, and that, 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 that somehow we need to be allowed to do that in a way that often I think we, we struggle with and therefore we feel like we're somehow not measuring up. And so maybe the, the story of Christmas too could tell us this in the sense that God comes to earth, yeah. God is with us, and it's not just with us as the angels sing in, in, the, in, the, in the manger with the fluffy straw, which always seems clean, um, <laughs> but actually is in the trials yes. and tribulations of human life. So I was thinking, uh, as I was thinking about talking about Christmas, about um, two passages from Hebrews where um, the writer of Hebrews says um, that Jesus was like us in every respect and particularly in being tempted or being tested. Mm, the mm, word's mm. ambiguous, right? 
going through the trials and tribulations of human life. And it's actually in that, in that testing, and we think particularly of the stories of him being tested in the wilderness, in that temptation, um, he m- almost completed his, his identification with us, becoming one with us. And that's getting into the importance as well of, of Jesus' ministry and what he was doing while he was on earth, so not shortcutting in between Christmas and Easter. No, there was there was more. There, there was, was stuff happening then. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't just sort of dallying for a while. No, 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 abso- absolutely, and it makes it makes sense of of that. It makes it makes the the cross meaning meaningful. It gives it its backdrop, its its mm. actual direction, doesn't it? That the whole story of Jesus's life, his teaching, revealing God. I mean, when you us. think about it, God with us, like every moment of that is indescribably precious, right? Yeah, you don't want to miss any. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Like all of that is incredible. Okay, so we've we've undone our question. Is Easter we have, better, yes. <laughs> better than Christmas? I think we want to say Christmas is is implicit in the Easter story. I I actually had the kids from the preschool into the church the other day, and um, they're three and they're four, and so they're sitting on the floor at my feet, and I'm supposed to do a Christmas talk, mm. and of course we've been told not to shock them too much because I get I gave an Easter talk a few years ago, and and the teacher said, oh, that was a little bit brutal. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I said, like sheep, we've gone astray. We're pretty silly, but Jesus died for us. And they were a bit. No, I got the feedback. Don't talk about death to three-year-olds. Okay, so, so I'm sitting in the Easter. church, and the little kids yeah. can see the cross of Jesus in the stained glass window behind me. And I'm talking about Christmas, trying to make it as fluffy as possible. Jesus, God loves us, etc. Yeah. And they're, turn, they're they're going, but he's dying on the cross. What? <laughs> ha- <laughs> Actually, so they get it. Right? That's really interesting, isn't it, with children? In that, I think one of our things with Christmas is we th- see it as a children's festival. Um, I've had in my head all morning, which has been awful, <laughs> the Amy Grant Christmas song, We Are The Reason, because I sang it in a choir when I was a kid. Uh-huh. I don't know it. I don't know it. So, so she's all talking about, you know, as a kid, we had all the presents and stuff, but really the reason for the season is is Jesus dying on the cross, that, that kind of whole thing. And, and similarly, we don't see Easter as for kids because um, we somehow want to... Uh, deny the reality of everything for kids when they're much more, I think, um, resilient and aware than we realise. So, so our ideas of what is maturity, I think, um, and what is innocence, I think, have, have real problems and they come into play with how we think about Christmas and Easter. Well, it's certainly the, the three-year-olds, I'm, t- I'm talking yeah. about three-year-olds, were not, they, they could see Jesus dying on the cross right there and they wanted to know what that was all about and what that, you know, the, the baby grew up to be a man who died on yeah. the cross. They, so I was sort of exposed as uh, trying to do my fluffy Santa Claus action. <laughs> <laughs> right no there. more fluffy. No. Indeed. No more fluffy. That's no, a good place no to fluffy. end. <laughs> Before we get into our next segment, we just want to ask you to do us a quick favour. It sounds like begging. I do a lot of begging. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, let's not go down there. So we're new. So if you want to keep listening, please subscribe to the show on your favourite podcast app. And it would also be really helpful if you can leave a review. Thank you to all those people who have already done that uh, for the show on iTunes. It helps other people find us in uh, the vast ocean of podcasts. We won't dictate what the review says, but nice but reviews, really please. Good. Yeah, <laughs> That's right. You have to say good but just different things uh, and one other thing we want to continue the respectful conversation in the real world uh, or rather on the online world and we'd love you to join us on the Eternity News Facebook page where you can keep talking about what we've been talking about and we'll join in we've got a new segment for you Q&A you ask us questions and we answer without the spin 
We've got a question. Uh, the question has come to us from Kirsty. We posted it on our uh, Facebook pages. We, we said, ask us some questions. And Kirsty asked this question. As two leaders in conservative denominations, how does the Holy Spirit move in your own lives? How open are you both to the prophetic and to signs and wonders? So we should probably start by saying which denominations we're in. Yes, and, and whether we own the word conservative, conservative. and yeah. what that might mean. Yeah, I, yeah, there was a bit to unpack there. So I'm Baptist. I'm Anglican. Yes, I'm ordained. We're both ordained. And actually, I mean, in, in a sense, in terms of almost all Baptists in New South Wales are evangelical. It's sort of conservative in that way. But, um, but it's quite a diverse grouping, really. So you would have people who are uh, what you might call charismatic and Pentecostal in the Baptist Yeah, the, the Baptist quite Union a lot. Wales, yeah. Who would identify with that? Whereas in the Anglican, Sydney Anglican world, which is mm. evangelical, Anglicans on the whole uh, are not evangelical or there, yeah. are, there are a diversity of Catholic, liberal and evangelical Anglicans. In the evangelical Anglicans in the world, there are quite a few charismatic evangelical Anglicans. But in particularly Sydney, in the UK, right? Particularly in the UK, yeah. um, but uh, there's a there's a blend, and so in America you'll get Catholic charismatic Anglicans, yeah. I believe. Um, <laughs> so they do the you know the sacrament, the whole sacrament thing, but speaking tongues at the same time. Uh, in Sydney, we've been resistant to the charismatic movement since it sort of came through in the 70s and 80s. It was sort of making its inroads in yeah. into Sydney, and the Pentecostal denominations were sort of starting up and getting bigger, and they were actually having an influence on on local suburban churches in ordinary denominations and mostly that's been been resisted there are some excep- exceptions but uh, but mostly we're not we wouldn't identify as charismatic so what we're saying is, is it's probably a bit, particularly my experience is there's been quite a lot of charismatic experience in it um, through my own denomination but through all others as well so ha- have you had a lot of experience with the charismatic movement uh, with the charismatic movement, I have charismatic. I have some of my best friends are charismatic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, I've not, uh, and I've been to charismatic churches, etc. Uh, I'm. I do not have uh, direct experience of the charismatic gifts as charismatic speak of them. I. I don't think in those terms. Gifts this my, connects up to our first segment. And it, well, indeed, it does. <laughs> I, I've been wondering um, about that. Sorry, go on. And, and yeah. so, I, and I have problems with the the charismatic um, theology. And so, well, first of all, I, the Holy Spirit moves in my own life, and I deny that I am denying the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. Yes, um, there's sort of an equation there potentially of the Holy Spirit with things that are perceived to be more supernatural, which might be a, a sort of um, artificial distinction, really. No, totally. I think yeah. it, I, I think it is an artificial distinction and and a very unhelpful one because yeah. it means that if I don't experience the miraculous and the, the supernatural, then somehow the Holy Spirit's not there. And I think that's a. Real and there's a bit of that with speaking in tongues. Like, so I have spoken in tongues. I have not spoken <laughs> in tongues. Um, but you know, I, I I really don't like that as a shibboleth. Like, I, I don't think that that's somehow a marker of being a better Christian or anything. Because I, I actually I've seen d- speaking in tongues, ah, okay. um, but I'm very skeptical of it. So right. that is that is I'm, I appreciate that some people speak in tongues, and that's fine. Um, just in reading one Corinthians fourteen, Paul's equation is between five intelligible words in a t- uh, and then ten thousand in a tongue. That is such an extraordinary. He says, "I'd rather speak five intelligible words in church." And mm. so uh, he says. It's great that I, sp- I speak in tongues more than all of you. So mm. he says it's, it's fantastic, but he says it's a private, it's a private, not a public gift. I mean, the equation is so extreme that yeah. I would, I would, I would be reluctant to see it. I'm probably skeptical and resistant, 
but I was sort of resistant until I actually did it. <laughs> um, and, and, and it happened when, so my, my husband's a psychologist and um, was in private practice for a long time. And the first time he had a client suicide, which you can imagine is a... Devastating, yeah. Yeah. And we were praying together and that was the time that I spoke in tongues. Um, so did you see it as a sort of um, Romans 8 sort of uh, groaning the spirit hearing, you know, with words... Beyond yeah, words, sort of yeah. It wasn't that for words. instance that we were sort of were both quite overwhelmed by, um, I guess the the feeling that there's so much pain in the world and and what you're doing is just such a little drop in it, and and, and also even as you're doing it, you know you might be doing it wrong, um, which is something I was struggling with because I was in the middle of training for the pastorate, that um, yeah. We almost had no response at the time. And, and anyway, my prayer of tongues came in that moment. Uh, that's a fantastic experience and I can understand that. Although I'm I'm wondering, when, in, when Paul talks about tongues, the gift mm. of tongues, he's talking about it in as it's expressed in the, in, in the, in the congregation. And, uh, and so he's, and he's quite cautious about how it might be, how it might be used and the emphasis that's placed well, on it. Well, certainly I... At the time, so when that was happening, was, there was a, a much bigger charismatic influence across Baptists at that particular time in New South Wales. And I sort of, I, I remember being in a lot of experiences of, of prayer walks and so on, where there was almost sort of like a, a pressure to speak in tongues while you were on those, just as a way to say you were properly doing the prayer, you know. Um, and I found that... I mean, I don't like rules, as we've discussed before. So I was quite resistant to that um, as a way of, of, as if that was making, you know, a, a better kind of prayer. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I I have the same concerns as Paul. Paul would love to know that I've endorsed him that way. <laughs> what about prophecy and the signs and wonders, miracles, healings, that sort of thing? Yep. Yeah, so, well, I'm going to turn it back on you before I talk. Okay. <laughs> So have you had any like dreams or visions or words or anything like that? No. Not at all. And, no, and I don't I don't look for them. I mean, I think uh, I'm I think I'm unclear that what is claimed to be prophecy in the New Testament um sorry, what is claimed by many in the charismatic movement to be prophecy is what the New Testament claims to be prophecy or that that we actually even know what that is or mm. that that's the expectation. Now, um some Conservatives, uh, conservative evangelicals would be what we call cessationists, and they would yep. say there was an epoch that ended with the apostles, the closing of the canon of scripture. Yes, taking Hebrews. And that's never been my theology. I think oh. I th- I'm open to the the reality that people experience dreams and visions, and God is God is free. God is free. Yeah. God can and God does, and I yeah. I, I think I believe that He does. I just don't think those are normative, or and I also want to show he... a right skepticism about them because. Yeah particularly with miracles of healing, often they turn out to be very loosely testified to. They're claims, but they're not... When you actually check them out, and and I think there's a disgrace in actually over-claiming for the miracles. And there's kind of a a discomfort there with reality of suffering, which we we, we have to come to terms with. Yeah. Um, Do you think... Because one of the things that I wonder, particularly when you look at the biblical... um, uh, sort of witness to this that dreams were used in cultures in which they were quite normative so do you think that sort of is still continuing like for instance there's a lot of stories about people in um, Islamic uh, communities and so on having dreams about Jesus yes I do believe I do believe that God 
would, could, and does do that. Uh, I guess the question is, um, with all of those dreams, they need to be tested by by scripture. The temptation mm. is that the miraculous experience, which we, we crave that because it feels like a, a direct experience of the divine. What we that's that's not what is the New Testament promise, or that's not the direction of the New Testament. We, yes, we get this. Although that's not something to reject either a direct experience of the divine. No, but uh, it, the the trouble is again that person has it, that person doesn't have it, that person. Uh, yeah. feels feels like well I'm not I'm, truly, I'm a lesser I'm, and that is a concern I I'm mean not I spirit filled I, I would say the problem that you're talking about about discerning occurs with every spiritual gift that I feel like we need to have that skepticism if you like across the board we need to have it about sermons I really would like yeah, to see enough. more about fair. sermons no no my sermons are infallible <laughs> I mean, and I think that's like an even, you know, sort of a conservative evangelical version of that kind of same thing happening where we get sort of figures where we're going there, the authority figure, and so everything they say, it's like the way they exercise their teaching gift is somehow infallible. Yeah, and I get it. So sometimes in my experience, people have claimed to have gifts of discernment or prophecy, mm. and they've been people who haven't had power in the church. So often they're people who are saying, uh, uh, I think they want a voice, mm. and um, they get that the guy with the theology degree, the guy, the male with a the theology degree in the ordination, mm. is has all the power to teach here. But they've got, they they kind of want a voice. And I think what I should sympathetically realise is that actually the person just needs needs to be heard. They're they're looking to be heard, or and, just and to play. I don't want to say devil's advocate, or God might be using that as a way to give the person a voice if, in fact, his people are shutting down that voice. Yeah, possibly, and and it, it is. You're right in the, in the sense that in that context, I'm very much more skeptical about the person claiming their miraculous gift or their authority. Is mm. I've got the, I've got the gift of discernment, which basically means anything I. It sounds to me like anything I say is is kind of divinely inspired. Whereas, and yeah, that, I mean that is the the trouble in the way that we treat that gift. So, or, or or yeah. The the other thing I think is that um we need to call out false prophecy. So mm. so. Uh, in the Old and the New Testament, if people uh, make prophetic claims and then they don't come true, then we should test them. We should say, "Hang on, mate, you, you've actually said something that didn't come true, so yeah. you better you better check it." But so this is at the point that I should admit that I do <laughs> get words and dream dreams and see visions, and I'm a bit awkward about it all, but I do. How do you receive that experience? And in multiple ways, how do you ways. interpret it? Well, think one of that? thing I did, um, I did kind of a little sort of. A low risk experiment where um, <laughs> I was like, every time I feel like I should, that I had a particular prompting to get in touch with someone for a particular reason, I would follow through. I would do it. And I found that um, every case, the person, as soon as I got in touch with them, said, I've just been praying for someone to call me, or, oh, that's amazing. This is just the perfect timing. Every single time that that happened. So I was kind of almost training myself to be able to go okay is this really from god like i've done prayer ministry where you're seeing things in the spirit for people and i always sort of think this is like before i'm going into it i'm like this is fakery <laughs> like, <laughs> like i have uh-huh. a, a concern about my own practice of it which maybe you would find helpful <laughs> but there, i mean there's also like the um the that's the, discernment the, isn't it? that's kind yeah. of the fil- the biblical filter I think you need of it. Of your but, experience, of any experience. But it's also the interpretation. Like, um, so I had one thing where my mother is like one of those people who just sees lots of things. And um, and she told me the month that I would get pregnant with my first child. And I was like, because I'd been like going, oh, it's not happening because I was having fertility issues. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and I was like, God, just send me an email with when it is. Like, 
angrily. And my mum said, you were getting pregnant then. And she was completely right, by the way. One in 12. (laughs) (laughs) And then she told me I was having a girl with my second, right? Okay. But no. You're having a boy. You are? Yeah, you've got a boy. I've got a boy. Yeah, just work <laughs> right, that out. Okay, right. Yes. <laughs> um, he's very pretty. Uh, <laughs> but the well, that's so. So she said that, and this other friend who was in my church who would like tell me the um, world news the week before it happened. Yeah. Like just, just like he would go. Someone says going to be assassinated. So what do you do with this? Yeah. Well, then he also told me I was having a girl. So two people that I knew over multiple things would be correct. Both told me I was having a girl. And then I was like, well, what do I do with that complete inaccuracy that actually was quite disappointing? <laughs> um, but when I asked them about it, they both had, in fact, bizarrely, well, not bizarrely, but they had exact same vision when I asked them for particulars. Uh-huh. So it was completely the same. And they just interpreted that what they were seeing was a girl because they knew oh, that I, I wanted that. So they, right, Okay. So there's an interpretation yeah. problem here. Yeah. I mean, do you think that was a divine spiritual gift or do you think it's just the humans have... See, one thing for me is in thinking of the supernatural, I think that human beings actually... that It's a supernatural world. And so yeah. speaking in tongues, for instance, is not just a Christian gift. I mean, it's, it's a religious phenomenon. It's a human phenomenon. I would completely and I would agree say with this, intu- yeah. That kind of prophecy, intuition sort of thing is also a human phenomenon. So my grandmother wasn't a Christian, but she yeah. was able to ring up my my mother yeah. uh, when she was living in a different country and say, something's wrong, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And and there was, you know, because my yeah, mother well, was a had character so... at the time. But I don't think that was a Christian thing. It was just a sort of human in touch. Yeah. With... My, um, my father's aunts were twins and they were not Christian and they were both psychic. And he will actually who's a fairly conservative dude, my dad, but he, he will say that that's in his family. This sort of intuition. Yeah, and in fact, he had a cousin who was psychic but then became a Christian and then she refused. She came to him with the sort of dilemma of, do I, um, should I play cards anymore? You might know what the cards are going to be. He was like, well, maybe not. Or like, <laughs> so that was could her. make a lot at the, uh, <laughs> the casino. Yeah, so I agree. I mean, I think that there's more to life than we often want to admit, uh, particularly sort of coming out of modernism. But then it's how we direct that. Yeah, so I, this is where I think Paul's going in 1 Corinthians 12 mm. to 14. It's what makes the spiritual spiritual. By the way, he uses the word spirituals, not spiritual gift as such. Yeah. Um, but what makes them spiritual is that they're used to edify the body of Christ, yeah. right? So that there, you can, if you've got the gift of administration, it is just as spiritual if it is used to build up the church as the gift of prophecy or the gift of. And often good preachers are just extremely articulate. People. Yes, which could be extremely misused. Yes, right? exactly. Yeah, and and that's a danger as well as to think if someone has got miraculous or or potent or obvious gifts that they are more spiritual. They they have the fruit of the spirit, whereas in fact we know people who are gifted, who they they're gifted, but that does not mean they are sinless or that they are you know that, that they yeah, can't be manipulated right. even using that. So there there's always that humility with all of the gifts. I'm going to posit to you that we actually have quite similar theology on this, but have had different experiences. Well, that might be a good place to, to yep. draw a line under that question. There's lots more to talk about, I think, but we thank you, Kirsty, for the question. Yeah. And I, I think we handled it respectfully, but there was uh, there we were did. strong there views was some, yeah. shared. But we'll, we'll come back to some of the issues we've raised here, and I we'd love we to have some more questions and to continue the conversation. And come back to some of the other questions that we didn't get to. That's right. 
Mark and Dave, reviews from two people obsessed by stories, but not always the same ones. And we're using story a little bit loosely here because we're going to review Christmas carols to come back into our Christmas theme. We thought we'd look at the theology and the background of Christmas carols and uh, what are the, what are we on earth singing? <laughs> well, what Christmas carols have we got on, on, on show that we're going to... Uh... Okay. Well, let's start with an Advent carol, which is one of my favourites, which is O Come Emmanuel. Uh, and, and I really feel like there's not enough Advent carols. Advent is a series of waiting expectantly mm. um, for not just for the first coming, reminding us of waiting for Israel, waiting for Jesus, but also waiting for the second coming. So it's a it's a series. It, it, it's very hard to do in the modern world because we're thinking about Christmas and we're sort of we're, we're thinking about feasting. But it's actually mm. a, it's meant, meant to be a time of um, serious reflection. And, uh, and, and it repentance. really does reflect our experience of being caught in the middle. Yeah, the the, the in between times. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. we're 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 here, but not there, but not yet. You know, we we mm. we experience um, both the the reality of union with Christ and the suffering that, of the world that's still here. Mm. And so we're we're expecting, we're hoping, longing. And so that's the that's the season of and that, that second coming. And that's why I think I really like O Come Emmanuel because it it, it speaks from yearning. So you're not just yearning to um, revisit the first coming, but your hopes for justice and peace and wholeness and so on. Yeah. So, and it, that's that's using Jesus's name, Emmanuel, God with us, is really or, kind of the yes. Or all the, the way through, it. it uses what are called the O antiphons, yeah. <laughs> which is a really old tradition of things about Jesus' title. So, yeah, this, this particular one, I really just love the the richness about how it talks about Jesus. And is it as ancient as it sounds? O come, Emmanuel. Yes. No, it's well, it's based on a lot of ancient. Um, traditions about uh, Jesus and, and the Advent season, but the, the hymn's not that ancient, I believe. I think the tune sort of is is uh, 15th century French, at least according to my in-depth <laughs> this wiki- morning. Wikipedia <laughs> <laughs> research. But yes. um, but what's interesting is it's it sort of comes all t- it all comes together with the word the current English words and the mm. music in the 19th century. And just from an Anglican point of view, there's a sort of uh, retrospective looking back to the Middle Ages, a bit like, you know, in the 1970s, happy days, look back to the 50s, that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. 19th century just longed for the sort of Middle Ages as a sort of high point of Christian uh, Christian life and spirituality. And there was a sort of nostalgia for it. So they they, they get these old words and this old parallel yeah. tune. I mean, and you said that happening, you know, with the whole Tomlin... <laughs> <laughs> take a an old take hymn, an old and hymn. <laughs> jazz it up kind and of thing. Collect going on. extra royalties. <laughs> oh, there's Is that, that as well. That's a bit cynical. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's, it's a bit like that. It's sort of, uh, it, it, but I think there's a good impulse here, which yeah. says says that. That, that this is an old, old truth. And a lot of Christmas carols, when you look into them, have that sort of community um, a construction. Community construction? Yeah. What so do you mean? They, over time, they develop. So uh, this is sort of the more um, obvious example. So the next carol that we're going to talk about was Hark the Herald Angels Yes, sing. which is not Hark the Herald Angels, <laughs> Harold the Angel Although that's amusing. But that, that was written by uh, one of the um, key figures of um, the start of evangelicalism, uh, Charles Wesley. And then the form that we have, or the, the first two lines, which we know really well, are actually George Whitfield's change. Yes, the Calvinist came the in Calvinist and changed The Calvinist came them. in and changed it. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Do we think this was a good change, though? 
Yeah. Well, what was he doing? <laughs> what, was it, what was the original? Uh, well, see, no one knows this word, so maybe it was, because it was Hark How All the Welkin Rings. Yeah, I, I think it was a good change. Do you know what a welkin is? <laughs> I, I've forgotten. It slipped my mind. <laughs> it's the firmament, so the, oh. the, 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 the sky realm. You I know. thought it was like a little little shellfish on the seashore. It, yeah, it feels it's more not. like that, doesn't it? It feels like that. Okay, well. I so, think it was a little bit archaic when, when Charles was and then it, And then the tune that they we sing to mm. it wasn't the tune originally, but then Mendelssohn came along and put a, you know, the stirring tune to it. It's like your Christmas tree and you've know, got the craft bits that you, your kids made <laughs> right, yes. and, and, and that they've done over the years and it all comes together to make something flawed but beautiful. I don't, think... actually, I don't actually do this with my Christmas tree. I have a strict theme. Okay. And I made my kids have their own tree that they put their craft evidence on. <laughs> Speaking of flawed, let's yes. move on to Away in the Manger, yes. which um, has this the controversial line, no crying he makes. When Jesus, the little the little baby, wakes up, and uh, allegedly it was written by Luther. It wasn't. Um, no. But it has this sort of sentimentality to it that Jesus is so perfect as a baby that he wouldn't cry, and that is the heresy of Docetism, yeah. which is, you know, Jesus only seemed to be human. Because we imagine that Jesus, the baby, um, wet his nappy and cried, of course. Otherwise, he's not a human baby. And, I really, and this comes back to the way that we treat children. I really dislike that this is our... I'm not a fan of Wayne Manger, and I really dislike that this is how we make Christmas for kids, that it's sort of Jesus isn't crying and... Ugh. <laughs> and you shouldn't cry either. You shouldn't cry, yeah. There's a yes. Implicit. And there's sort of that sentiment that you get with the Victorian idea of childhood and that kind of thing. Now, what about a Come All You Faithful, which apparently has a code in it? Ah, oh, yeah, the, the Jacobites. Political. I actually have Jacobite um, history. Who were the Jacobites? The Jacobites were those who wanted to put the Catholic uh, royal family back on the Scottish throne. So in the 17th and 18th century? Yes. And... How does it fit? Like it's supposed to be about Jesus, but it's not really. Well, about this is Jesus. a really triumphant hymn, isn't it? So this yeah. is like let's get our um, sort of uh, secular, well, earthly Messiah of the um, Stuart royal family back onto the throne. So mild he lays his glory by. <laughs> is, that, is that the one? Yeah, I mean, I really don't know whether this story is is true. Apparently, it would often be decorated um, with Jacobite imagery in okay. in the carol books that it was. Ugh. Well, I, you know, I, that, that puts a whole new light on it. It does. <laughs> so. And I, I'm a Republican, so, you know, this, I mean, although I have some family Jacobites, but yes. It, it was about putting the Catholic prince back on the throne on the throne, as against the Protestant ascendancy. Yeah. Cosmos, so. so maybe this is a, a hymn that reminds us that we, when we're saying, oh, come on, you're faithful, when we, we're calling the faithful to arms, let's be very careful what we're calling them yeah. to. And lastly, speaking of uh, war, what about Silent Night? Um, now, there's a sort of romantic story about Silent, Silent Night that the organ had broken and it's the night before Christmas. And um, Yeah, and the, so they the used priest, a guitar. Uh, they used a guitar. It's a very hippie Gruber romantic story. Yeah. used the guitar and more. The priest kind of came up with these words, um, but not so. Yeah, and look, I don't really mind. Um, but we do know that the story is about how that there was um, ceasefires in both world wars. Uh, around the both world wars, yes, yeah, the, yeah. It, I think they were just copying World War One, really. The witness said uh, from the first first World War that a, you know a tenor, a guy who was a soldier who was a tenor yeah. in the Berlin Opera, kind of sang um, "Silent Night" from the trenches, and he had a, the voice carried, and so then the English started singing it too. This is the story. Yeah, and he was singing "Stille Nacht," which yes. is slightly different lyrics, actually. 
Uh-huh. I mean, besides the, the fact that it's German. The, right, yeah. okay. <laughs> okay. Um, but, I mean, yeah, I think this this is a carol that's become more than its parts, if you like. Like, it's it, it speaks to us now of that commonality that often gets ignored when we go into war with people. Yeah, so the, the, there's a tragic aspect to it, but also hopeful that we could uh, we could lay down arms. Yes, and, and apparently... The silence could be the silence of peace, that... that, that that's the silence there. Because I think, obviously, the night is not silent because the angels are singing a lot. No, and there's probably quite a lot of noise around Jesus' birth I think. with various things. But, yes, I think that's why it still communicates. It's the silence of, of peace and calm. Yeah. Well, thank you for listening to With All Due Respect. And we hope you have a very grace-filled and carol-filled Christmas. Yes, yeah, so I hope this has got your toes a tapping, and you're, you know, you've, you've got those tunes in your head now. Uh, thanks for listening to us uh, this year. Uh, we look forward to uh, seeing you, and um, well, seeing you metaphorically <laughs> a lot next year. <laughs> With all due respect, is hosted by Megan Paldutois and me, Michael Jensen. This episode was produced by Alex Bennett. Sound designed by Adam Jones. Check out our show notes if you want to take a closer look at anything we mentioned on today's podcast. You can find them at eternitynews.com.au backslash respect. And you can be part of the respectful and really interesting and engaging conversation over on the Eternity News Facebook page. Next time on With All Due Respect, I asked Michael to read the book Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger by Rebecca Traster. <laughs>